turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 9, be a couple, several different passages. Uh, I just want to share with you, uh, I try to share always from my heart, but uh, maybe particularly close to my heart uh, tonight. I've been thinking over a period of time, really a long period of time, uh, and I've spoken many times about the brokenness uh, that God ordains into our lives. Um, and, and I've been trying to sort of categorize that, what I mean by that in, in my contemplations. And, and I've come to the conclusion, this conclusion, uh, we are broken for entry into the kingdom, we are broken for service, and we are broken for glory. Uh, and that's kind of the outline or the heading I want to share with you tonight. And just, uh, there are many examples in scripture, but and Paul might be an example uh, of both broken for entry and broken for service. But in Acts chapter 9, we read of his conversion and how the Lord broke him. Uh, let me just insert here, that, and, and I want to share a little bit of my testimony, but uh, I realize that everybody's uh, conversion, everybody's coming to Christ was not uh, a dramatic experience as Paul had here, uh, or, or like the one I'll describe to you in my own life. Now, some people maybe were raised in Christian homes uh, they were exposed to the truth of the gospel and the glory of God early on in life. Uh, and at some point in life, it was almost a natural progression for them to, uh, to come to Christ. And they may have not felt that dramatic ripping away uh, from the old man. Uh, that was my experience and the experience of many. That doesn't mean they're not saved. And so if you didn't have that dramatic experience, don't think, well, I, I need to find some dramatic experience. We're saved by grace uh, through faith. But I wanted to share uh, just what I mean by those three uh, titles tonight. So if you begin uh, in chapter 9 of, of Acts, we read of Paul or Saul's uh, conversion. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for him to the synagogues at Damascus so that, so that he found so that if he had found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. So that, uh, that's just a brief description of Paul's experience. Up until this point, Paul was a zealous Jew. Uh, he was persecuting the church. He felt as though the church was, uh, was a, a, an affront or blasphemous to his God. Uh, he was willing to be involved, uh, certainly, uh, if not directly involved with the murder of Stephen, uh, he held the cloaks of those who were involved. So Saul was zealous, religious, and zealous, and he was carrying on in his life as he thought best. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Paul never even imagined that he was fighting against God himself. In other words, uh, what I'm getting that there is that he was moving along in his life. He was carrying out what he believed to be his agenda. His happened to be his religious idea, ideology, his agenda in, in terms of God. And so he, he, he had a, at least a religious connotation to his life. Um, every life may not had that religious connotation. But my point here is Paul was going along in life, doing what he thought best. And God interrupted, 
interrupted that. I've heard some people say that maybe the Holy Spirit began to work in the heart of Paul whenever he witnessed uh, Stephen's death, when Stephen uh, really blessed those who were stoning him and rose and said he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father, and maybe that impacted Saul to some degree. That may be, but we're not, it doesn't indicate that. As far as we can tell, Paul was busy doing his thing. He was going along in his life, pursuing what his passion was, what his, what his interest and what his own conviction was. And God supernaturally and divinely and providentially intervened in the life of Paul. Not only did he intervene, but he intervened with, a, uh, with extraordinary outward events. These other people who were with him, though they didn't hear the voice, they certainly witnessed, it seems, the, the flash of light. Perhaps there was a thundering there or something. But he says, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and apparently so, so powerful or so overwhelming was this light or this uh, maybe even concussion from this light. Whatever it was, it knocked him down apparently to the ground. He fell to the ground. And there, having been interrupted, he hears the voice, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Of course, in verse 4, verse 5, he says, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So, so that's the dramatic brokenness, as it were, of his entry. We know from his letters that after this point, he went away for some 14 years. And we also know from his letters that at some point in that 14 years, he speaks of himself in the third person and says something about being taken up into the third heavens where he was, uh, saw revelations that a man was not even permitted to speak. And so, so Paul was converted. Uh, it was, he, God interrupted the course of his life. And to me, there is a brokenness involved in our coming to Christ, in our conversion. We will not, by the power of the flesh and by the reason and the logic of the flesh and the, and the passions of the flesh, come to this experience we call conversion or regeneration. It is not produced by man or his effort. It is, a, it is an act of God by which he breaks the man and brings him into the kingdom. John chapter 3 uh, tells us very clearly that we shall not see the kingdom of God unless we are born again. Neither shall we enter into the kingdom of God unless there is a new birth. We know, largely speaking, the new birth involves the putting to death of the old man in Christ and the raising up of the new in Christ. But it is a God, it is a God work to break the man, as it were, bring him to the end of himself and to bring him into the kingdom. I've shared uh, somehow, some, to some degree, my testimony. Some of you have heard it more in full, but we have a lot of new folks that I've never shared this with. And, and I'm no way endorsing the means by which God worked in my life. This is just my experience. But I remembered about 27, 28 years old, uh, things looked good on the outside. I had been in business for myself and was doing fairly well had a wife who loved me and who I loved, and we had a beautiful young daughter, and, and life was good. Uh, on the outside, you would have said things are going well for Larry. But slowly, little by little, there was this depression sinking in on me. And there was this, there was this idea that what is, what is the end toward which all this is going? Where's this going? 
Is there nothing more than this? In fact, if this, is, if this ends and there's no meaning or purpose or direction to it at all, I don't know that I can even enjoy this day today because the idea that it will come to a conclusion someday will be enough to dampen my enjoyment of this very day. And, it, and that progress continued for months and months and months for me, and I, and I was growing more and more in despair. And my problem was that through the years I had become agnostic. I was reasonable and rational enough to have rejected atheism because my reasoning was that in order to make such a blanket statement, you would have to be all-knowing and that would make you God. So as a matter of reason, I couldn't hold to the atheistic position. So I went to the next place, which was agnostic. Maybe there is a God, but it can't be known. It can't be known. And so my life became more and more futile. I was going along my way just like Saul. My life was becoming more and more feeling of futile to the point to where not even hope, certainly not my daughter, and no one in my family realized how close I was to taking my life. The despair was completely overwhelming for me. If I lived another hundred years and enjoyed every single day of those hundred years, and it ended in nothing, it was complete futility to me. I shared later that Ecclesiastes was the book of the Bible that spoke most directly to the inward condition of my heart. All is vanity, all is vanity, and I cannot bear another moment of this. I, I grieved the thought of my wife being without a husband and my daughter without a father, but I could not bear to live another moment if it meant nothing. And slowly that was pushing me down. And one night I went to bed and feeling that despair and I began to dream. I didn't know at the time it was a dream. It was vivid and real to me. I was on the way home from a job and I was in my truck and it was a nice summer afternoon or summer evening. There was a gentle wind blowing and I had the window down and I was just riding home from work. And I remember thinking in the dream and remarking to myself, this is just a pleasant day. With everything that I had been going through, the pleasantness of it was a reprieve of sorts. I just, I just wanted the pleasantness of that to go on forever. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to just keep driving because there was just something pleasant about the drive. And as I rounded a curve on that beautiful summer evening, I saw the road blocked ahead. And I saw... I, uh, ambulances and sirens and the, and the flashing lights, blue and red, and you know how traffic will stop. And I remember I had my radio on, and, and so just as a matter of respect, as I got closer, I turned my radio down, and as they were slowly letting traffic through, as I got closer, I realized that there had been a fire, and it was a mobile home on the left side of the road. And as I got closer and closer, they would stop people for a little bit and they'd get closer and closer. I, I realized there was a, it looked like a mother comforting a small child in the front yard and the, and the mobile home was just in ruins. There was just basically a frame left and you couldn't make much out. And they were weeping and the firemen were trying to console them. And, and I remember sitting in traffic and it just broke my heart because someone had been lost in this fire, obviously, and they were grieving that loss. And while they had it stopped, I began to scan the, re the remains of that mobile home. 
And I began to look from one end to the other, and I began to identify areas of the trailer, uh, the mobile home, and I'd say, well, that must have been the kitchen. And, and then I looked over here, and I could tell where maybe the bathroom was, and all the way to the far left end of the mobile home, it looked like what was a bed frame, and I saw firemen gathered around there. And apparently that was where the body of the victim was. And as I sat there in traffic, I was just stunned at what I was witnessing. And I, you know, it's almost like a movie. I was trying to zero in to see if I could make out a shape to be sure it was a body. And, and as I was staring at that object there, that what I believed to be a body, uh, and I made it out and I could figure out where the head was. And as I zoomed in in my mind's eye to that moment, right when I was looking closest, the eyes opened. And here I was looking dead into the eyes of a perishing man. And I, I, remember, I remember thinking in the dream, I've never saw such vivid despair in my life. There was something in the eyes, there was a resignation to the despair and the horrors, and every, the depth of the soul. It was though I was looking into the eyes of this man as he was living his last seconds on the planet and the despair and the and the horror of it all, and it was just stunning to me, so much so that it, it jolted me from my sleep. And naturally, realizing it was a dream, I knew I couldn't lay down and go back to sleep that way. And so I ran to the bathroom and, and just, just, just to refresh myself, started the water and was splashing in my face and wetting my face. And when I looked up into the mirror and looked into my own eyes, it dawned on me. The man in the bed was me. The mama and the daughter in the yard was Hope and Jessica. And the despair was mine. And God used that. And I never forgot that. It is as vivid to me today as it's ever been. And then it went on like that for some time. And, and I was growing farther and farther in despair. And I fell asleep on a Saturday afternoon on the couch. Hope and Jessica were away and I was alone. And somewhere in the middle of that nap something woke me up and I realized my, my perilous condition. That was me. And that was, to me, that was foretelling of my destiny if there wasn't a change. And I fell from the couch and fell to my knees there in the living room by myself. And I said, God, if you exist and if I can know you, show me yourself. That's all that I prayed. And the first impression that came into my heart was, read my word. And I began to devour the Bible. And what I'm saying is, that's, that was the brokenness that brought me into the kingdom. Because in that moment of prayer, when I was crying out to God, I felt the weight of my sin and the just condemnation. For the first time in my life, I understood that if I spend eternity in the despair that I saw in my own eyes, God is righteous in, in sending me to that place. I would have to bow my knee and acknowledge his justice and his righteousness. And in the moment that I felt the most of the weightiness of that sin, it dawned on me what the cross was for. That was the only remedy. There was no other remedy. Not my good works, not my change of, of attitude, not me turning over a new leaf, not me believing some illusion to sustain my 
pursuits of fleshly things. There was no other remedy for the condition that I realized that I was in other than the cross and Christ. And so I think that was similar to what happened to Paul. Paul was going along his way, doing his thing, happy in his delusion, as it were, a, a, a purpose in life, a driving life. Paul was moving right along, but God intervened in the life of Paul, struck him down from whatever he was upon, whether it was on foot or on horseback, put him to the ground and called him by name, Saul, Saul. And that's what I mean by God breaks a man to bring him into the kingdom. I don't know that you can truly appreciate the grace and the mercy of the cross until you've come to realize the, the just condemnation that you are under and to realize the despair and the hopelessness you, have, you are without Christ and to me, that brokenness is necessity for bringing a man into the kingdom. So we're broken for entry. We're broken as well for service. You could use Paul as, a, as an example here as well. But he tells him to get up and go into the, into the town there. And Ananias is going to pray for him. And God's going to use him as a judgment or as an instrument of his, uh, to reach the Gentiles. And he tells him later on in that passage, verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I've already mentioned Paul being taken up into the third heavens and given revelations so much so that the Lord, uh, the Lord essentially allowed for him to have a, a messenger of Satan to buffet him lest he exalt himself at the degree of his revelation. And so I think Paul lived with that thorn the rest of his life. In fact, he prayed to have it removed because in his mind, he thought, surely the thorn is keeping me from being effective for the kingdom. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. The thorn stays. My grace is sufficient. And Paul, in typical Paul fashion, says, well, then, having said that, let me therefore rejoice in my weakness. For in my weakness, Christ is made strong in me. And so Paul, through a thorn, experienced that brokenness. But I was thinking more specifically of Peter in Luke, Luke 22. If you'll turn with me there and we'll look at that. Jesus has said to his disciples, I have chosen you, yet one of you is a devil, speaking in terms of Judah there, but in Chapter 22, verse 31, or even before that, Jesus says to Simon Peter, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But listen to Peter, but he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Now, Peter's, Peter's a believer. He, he's had entrance into the kingdom here, I believe. But, but there's, there's a sifting that's going to have to take place in the life of Peter. And Peter don't know it yet. He don't realize, he don't realize how, how reliant he is upon his own strength as a believer He's resting in his own power, in his own strength, and he declares boldly with full conviction, I am sure, 
Lord, I am with you. I am ready to go both to prison and to death. He says in another place that if everybody else forsakes you, I will not. I happen to believe that in all of, with all of his heart, Peter was convinced and resolved that in fact I will go all the way to the cross for you. He was bold enough to pull out a sword to go to the defense of his Savior. But he wasn't fit for ministry yet. Wasn't fit for ministry yet. Why? Because he was still relying upon his own strength. So I think there is another brokenness that happens in the life of those who have come to Christ. Because when we come to Christ in that moment and God delivers us out of this death into life, there is such gratitude and such joy that we set about obeying all the commands and doing all that we know to do for Christ out of sheer gratitude. And rightly we should. But then we call, get caught up over time in thinking this is the essence of the Christian life. Out of gratitude for Christ, I will spend the rest of my days doing the work and will and, and the Word of God. I will carry out the Great Commission. I will, I will do all these things out of the gratitude of my heart. And that's good enough to start. But you're not useful to the kingdom yet. Because you are likely, you revert to doing these things in the power of your flesh. Even if you ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Even if you say intellectually and as a matter of doctrine that the Lord does the work through you. There is this human fleshly inclination that we can somehow take it on our own now out of sheer gratitude. I love you, Jesus. I'm thankful for my salvation. And because of that, I'm going to devote my life to doing what you said. And you set out and you do it in your own strength. And you're like Peter. And I was like Peter. Lord, I'm ready to go to death with you. I know I was lost, I was broken and in despair, and you brought me up out of the pit and out of sheer gratitude and the overwhelming, amazing grace of my salvation, I am resolved in my strength. I will, I will pour myself out for you, Lord. That's the way you set out as a Christian, right? But then somewhere along the way, you begin to realize that that's not enough. That's not enough. And in Peter's case, particularly, Jesus says to him, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you. And what's even more frightening is he says the implication is it has been allowed. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. So you're in the kingdom, Peter, but you're not yet ready. You're not yet, you're not yet usable in kingdom work. Because Peter, you're still trying to accomplish the goals of the kingdom in the power of your flesh. And Peter, I didn't go to, to the cross just to deliver you from the penalties of hell so that you could continue on in the flesh. Peter, I'm going to the cross so that the flesh might have an avenue or a, a capacity now to be destroyed forever and the new man living by the Spirit, living and serving for kingdom purposes. But Peter, you're not there yet. So it's going to require a brokenness. And certainly the devil does assist him because when Jesus is arrested and he's taken away three times, Peter denies Jesus before a far less foe, a far less dangerous foe than a Roman centurion. In one case, a little maiden girl. I don't know the man. 
He says it with an oath. This one who's willing to die in the strength of his flesh and in the resolve of all of his power. I don't know the man. Never met him. See, Peter's about to be broken. Because as he denies Christ and they bring Christ out, I think it's the gospel of Mark that makes the point that as he's coming out, he looks over at Peter and they make eye contact. And at that point, Peter remembers that Jesus said, you'll deny me three times, Peter, before the rooster crows. And he just fulfilled it. And both, both Luke and Mark say that at that moment, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Broken. Broken. Now, now he's about to be fit for kingdom work. He had the heart. He had the drive. He had the devotion. But it was his. It was his. And I remember that in my Christian life. Just out of sheer gratitude for Christ, I wanted to follow Christ everywhere. I was devouring the word every single day. You can ask Hope. I would come in from work, eat supper, open my Bible, read till 3 a.m., shut the Bible down, go grab a couple of hours sleep, and back to work the next day, 6 a.m. Three months solid, devouring the word. And I'm telling you, on every page, the glory of God was on display. And I was, I was hoping this book won't ever end. And man, I would go out and, and those, truths were, they, those truths were coming to bear on me and, and out of gratitude for God and just, just, the, just the amazement of, of the reality of God. I was resolved that by the sheer strength of my will and determination, I will be a Christian. And I made a valiant effort, as probably you have. But then I began to realize something. I'm failing a lot here. And every failure was devastating. Every one. Because I was thinking in terms of what Christ had done in my life and what he had accomplished. And the slightest failure was debilitating to me because how could I, how could I betray him in this moment? I preached a sermon years ago. Some of you may remember it. But the title of it was The Judas in Me. And that's the way I felt. Every single betrayal and then I would double down and resolve and I would rebuke myself and said, you don't love Jesus enough. That's your problem. And so I'd say, Jesus, I'm trying to love you more. And I'd go out and put, put all my effort there again. And I would work on my doctrine and, and get everything where it needed to be. And I would go out and try to obey. And then I would fail again. And then I noticed something happening. I started failing more and more and growing more discouraged and failing more and more. And he, was, and he was driving me towards this place that, in my mind, it was as if he was saying, Larry, there is, there is no usefulness in the flesh. As I shared about spiritual fruit, I'm not interested, Larry, in the fruit that you can produce. I'm interested in producing my fruit through you. And I don't, need your, I don't need your labor for that. I don't need your contribution in that. I need your yielding in that. And that went on for many times. And then, and then, as if to put me in the ultimate crucible to break me for service, he started stirring in my heart a call to vocational ministry, which terrified me. 
Me? In front of people? Speaking? You couldn't put me in a more unfit place for me. And, and it's as if the Lord was saying, that's exactly right. I want to put you in the place where your flesh can't survive. Where it can't be nourished where it can't be encouraged, where it can't be fed. I want to starve it out of you, so come to the, you're coming to the ministry. And so there I went. And, I'll, and more recently, that culminated in that seven years of litigation, and that's where the real brokenness began to happen. There's no way out of that. If I, if I bail, it requires forsaking the truth and the word of God. If I yield to it, it may require seven years of pressure, not only on me, but on the people that I love. Lord, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, and what came out of that, and I hope that what's more true today than it ever has been, is there is no relying on the flesh. And through all that process, it is the Lord fitting me and fitting you in your circumstances for ministry. Yes, he broke you to bring you into the kingdom, but there's a breaking ahead of you, and it may be ongoing right now. There is a breaking necessary to make you fit for the kingdom. Fit for the kingdom. And by that, I mean bringing you to the place to where you are a vessel through which the Spirit works through which, through which Christ is honored and glorified and exalted, and there is no temptation to exalt the flesh in the same moment. Where you become more desirous of the glory of Christ and the, and the operation of the, of the Spirit of God than you do the comforts in your own life. And so there is a brokenness for service. I don't know your circumstance in detail. Some of you may have been broken for that service. Some of you may be in the process of being broken for that service. Some of you may be serving the Lord as I did for a long time just out of sheer gratitude, but yet in the power of your flesh and your own determination and the power of your personality and disposition. I'm saying to you, that will run out. That will run out. And eventually you'll realize that that is, that is not fruit unto the glory of God. That is fruit unto your own glory. And then the Lord will lead you down a path or he will bring things into your life. In this case, in Peter's case, he allowed Satan himself to send a, a buffeting, to, to send a thorn. And so Satan himself was doing the sifting here. You wouldn't think the Lord would allow Satan to sift me, to fit me for ministry. Well, he did Peter. Obviously, we have the assurance that he's prayed for us that our faith may not fail. And, and so we will persevere even through the sifting. But the Lord will bring into our lives brokenness to fit us for kingdom service. I think one of the things that frustrates me most about commercial Christianity is how reliant upon their charis, charis, charisma and their dynamic personality and their, their secular giftedness, as it were, to sustain the ministry. And they get more and more popular and they rise and they rise and they rise and they rise and there are accolades. I've told the story about uh, one of a 
pastor of a large church that was uh, one of our instructors in Fruitland. And, and he said he was preaching this big revival or something. And afterwards, this grandmother brought a little toddler up to him. And, and she said, I'm sorry to bother you, but he, he's just been dying to meet you. For, for you, you are a celebrity to this little boy. And I remember him sharing his testimony at Fruitland. You know, brother, uh, uh, you, you know who I'm talking about here. Uh, but he was talking about when that little boy, when she said that about that little boy, it was like it drove an arrow deep into his heart. And he remembered thinking, I've done something terribly wrong here. This little fellow thinks I'm the celebrity, and the celebrity's Jesus. And, it, and he shares how it, it redirected his ministry back to a, a better place. And see, that's the power of the flesh and the subtlety of the flesh. The last one, broken for glory. Uh, I won't go through the entire book of Job, but that's where I went to. Uh, you know, in Job 1.8, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, and I don't know that I can recall this testimony given by God of a man other than Christ, but of a man uh, on this earth like Job. Have you considered my servant Job, a righteous man who hates evil and turns away from evil? That's God's testimony of Job. He's righteous. He's a righteous man. And then everything falls apart. He gets word that there's been a great storm and his livestock and all of his property have been taken away. And then there was a great wind and the house where his children were gathered collapsed and all of his children died. And yet Job maintained his righteousness. The Lord hath given and the Lord shall take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the Lord allows for his body to be stricken by Satan who wanted to try him. And so he gets balls and he begins to have a putrid flesh. And he's rotting away literally before the eyes of those who love him to the point that his own wife encourages him, I think, as an act of mercy, curse God and end it all. Curse God and die. And he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not also calamity? Righteous man, righteous man. But then when we get all the way towards the end of the book and Job asserts his own righteousness, his own integrity throughout, and he even says in some places, oh God, if you would if you just give me an audience before you, I would lay out my case before you. And almost as if he's saying, I demonstrate to you that I'm suffering unjustly. And his friends rebuke him harshly and one of the passages that touches me most in Job is in Job's despair. He says to his friends, don't you know that these are just words for the wind? I'm hurting. I don't mean this. I'm, I'm, I'm erupting and grieving out loud. They're words for the wind. But nonetheless, Job is confused because he's a righteous man and his integrity is held fast. He has not let his eyes waver. He has not let his flesh lust. He has been righteous to the, field, the hands who work his field. He has, he has been a godly, righteous man. So why is he suffering so, so? And you don't really know until we get to the end. And I just want to read you this passage in Job. I underlined this in my Bible years ago, and, and I wrote out beside of this, this has been the point from the start. 
to give you some context, in chapter 40, verse 6, the Lord comes to Job again and he says to him, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself, Job, with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud to make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. In this verse, then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. That's the point. And to me, that's stunning. Job apparently was resting in his own integrity and righteousness for his standing before God. And when calamity came, he naturally began to protest. And, and he was legitimate, honest. I think he was a righteous man by God's own testimony. But Job, the revelation here is that it is not your righteousness that brings you into acceptance with God. It is my righteousness. He says, do all these things that I can do. If you can do that, Job, then I will confess to you that your own right arm can save you. Job couldn't do those things. And neither could Job's own right arm save him, nor could his righteousness But he's not broken for nothing. Let's listen to what he says in chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, by the way, I hope you can feel the heart of Job here because every time I read this, I can almost feel it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he's speaking of himself. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that which I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Hear now, Lord, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you. This is the key. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But after all this brokenness, now my eye sees you. Now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Listen, there is a brokenness that is necessary to see the glory of God. There's just no other way to see it. You remember the, the blind man who was by the way and the disciples walked by and Jesus was there with them and the disciples naturally in their culture looked at the man and asked Jesus, is this man blind for his sin or his parents? And Jesus says a remarkable thing, neither. But he's blind so that the glory of God might be revealed in him. Broken. Broken man, a blind man. Blind from birth. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would God allow such brokenness in a man that his glory might be revealed in him? So you see where I'm coming from? There is a brokenness that is involved in bringing us into the kingdom. But there is a brokenness, and this is the most significant one in some ways. There is a brokenness that happens as we're living the Christian life that is necessary to make us 
meat for ministry, to make us fit for the kingdom work. And then there's a brokenness even in the midst of that that opens our eyes to the real glory of God. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm saying that, that one might come right at the moment I'm taking my last breath. It might. And in that moment, the veil will be rolled back and I'll behold the glory of God. And there's no brokenness like death. And that's about as broken as you can get. And so I just wanted to share my heart with you. All of us, that's a process, I think, for all of us. If you're born again, whether you came early as a child, there was a transition from an old life into a new. But if you lived like I did, and you lived later on in life, and you sinned the way I did, the transferring from death unto life is abrupt, and it is stark, and it is nothing short of, of brokenness. And then as you're living your Christian life, you're going to go through times. When you're in hard times, just think in terms of God is fitting me now for ministry in the kingdom. I don't know how and I don't know what the other end of this will be like, but in God's providence, this must be necessary for making me fit for the kingdom. And so like Paul, we say in that moment, I will rather rejoice in my weakness so that Christ might be made strong in me. And then we go on that way, maybe to the end of our days, maybe through some other more severe breaking, even in this life, in which we will behold the glory of God. In that moment, we will realize it was never about your righteousness at all. It was never about your contribution. You were never putting weight in a scale. You will behold the righteousness of God. You will see Christ as he is. And I love 1 John 3, 1 and 3, 1 through 3. We don't know what we shall be, but we know this. When we see him, we will be like him. And I think that's what will happen in the glory of God. So thank you for your attention. Stand with me. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, with fear and trembling, we thank you even for brokenness. It is not a pleasurable experience. It is not comfortable. It is heart-wrenching, and even from my own experience, there are moments when you think, we think we won't even survive it. Reading Andrew Brunson's book recently, I thought about how the Lord brought him to that place. He was a missionary. He was doing kingdom work. Perhaps he wasn't yet fit for the, for the kingdom work. And oh, what a brokenness you took him through. But oh, the glory he beheld in the end. And Father, I pray that you would grant grace and mercy that we might be patient through those times that you are fitting us for kingdom work and even bringing us to a place to where we might behold your glory. Bless those who are here tonight. Father, bless our church. Uh, Lord, it's, uh, we're, we're people, we're fallen uh, men, we are not yet glorified, and so these dynamics are working out in our lives in various ways every day and all the time. But Lord, I thank you for the mercy and grace that holds us together in Christ, and I just pray that you would bless 
uh, our church richly, individually and corporately as well, that Christ might be magnified here in this place through our ministry, through our lives lived individually and corporately. For the sake of Christ's name and for your praise, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.